Hello and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Joining me on today's episode is Jordi Henderson, General Manager of AWS Messaging and Streaming at Amazon Web Services and previously VP Engineering at Hootsuite. Jordi has spent the last 20 years leading technology teams and has a broad perspective on what it takes to build, integrate, and lead successful software organizations. He's one of the first people that I turn to when I have questions about organizational design and innovation. It was great to have him join me on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. So with that, let's dive right in. All right. Hello, Jordi, and welcome to the Project to Product podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, thanks, Mick. Nice to be here with you today. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. I think as as we were uh, previously chatting, where when I was getting all of this sort of knowledge and inspiration from you on organizational design and and how we can evolve what we're doing at Tastop, help our customers evolve. I just you know as as you know realized that the kind of learnings that you've had with the experiences of scaling teams and team structures and dynamics at Hootsuite at AWS is is something I think. Our listeners will learn a ton from, especially because this this shift from project to product and to optimizing flow for for business outcomes, for developer happiness, for for customers, it requires having the right kind of structures. So, I would just bef- before we get into what you've learned and what you've done at AWS and some of the principles that you've applied, you know, some of which are are well understood, some of which I think are a lot a lot more poorly understood. It'd be great to hear just a bit more about your career and, and how you started you know, creating high-performing teams. Maybe maybe we can start with uh, with Hootsuite. Sure, sure. So I'll just do the, the, the preamble to Hootsuite was I, I spent 10 years, co-founded a, a startup uh, called Metalogic Software, grew it with partners and sold it to private equity firms in, in 2008, uh, which was its own kind of interesting scaling journey, a very bootstrapped company. We didn't, we didn't take investment, but as we got traction, we were able to slowly build teams and, and figure out what did and didn't work. And then moving to Hootsuite in 2011, that's where I, I, I mean, I, I got on just as the rocket ship was lifting off and things were growing very quickly on all dimensions, customer base, you know, all, all the all the business metrics you'd want to see scaling the team really quickly. And through the course of six years there, I, I, I joined, I think I was about employee 40. I left, and we were all in Vancouver. When I left, we were in the neighborhood of a thousand employees across. There were engineering teams that I was leading in five different countries. So over six years, that was a lot of scale. And we had to learn a lot about how to organize and reorganize a number of times and, and try entirely different models of how to deliver software for for our customers. So that was an interesting journey. I then spent two years at Bench Accounting, also in Vancouver. And that was, my role at Bench was to reorganize the team a bit so that it was better aligned to the scale that that business was experiencing. And that was a really interesting business because it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a classic SaaS business. It was people doing bookkeeping at scale for small businesses across the United States primarily. And that required a whole different way of thinking about the technology team that was going to support that big group of, of people doing bookkeeping. And then 
in 2019, January 2019, I joined AWS. And the the personal motivation there was, okay, I've, I've seen how organizations and, and technology teams work within companies that are growing really quickly, but only up to about 1,000 employees. So let's go see what it's like <laughs> at a company with well over a million employees. Um, and and that's that's been uh, a whole new, really interesting journey over the last three years. So I, I, I want to rewind. I can't wait to get to that, but rewind just a bit. So, so f- because the 40 to 1,000 is, is fascinating, right? And I think I imagine... The, if you could take us through some of the the reorgs that you did, and maybe uh, you know, some good steps and some missteps that you took, that then I think paved the path for for what you brought to to Bench and then to AWS. But how many reorgs did you end up doing, Jordan? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there, there's different scales of reorg, right? So, I mean, too many to count, but I think there were there were three big shifts that we did as we as we grew. And I actually I did a talk about this. A couple of years ago, at a, at a Canadian technology conference, I think the YouTube video is still out there. But broadly speaking, so when I joined, I, I joined as as a, a a director, and and my role as director was to lead the product and engineering capability with a view to delivering like a specific piece of the product mandate. So the the piece of the mandate that I happened to be responsible for was the APIs and integrations, which kind of maps to like the enterprise features that were being overlaid onto Hootsuite, which was then a consumer product. Then there were there were other functions. There was somebody there was a director responsible for the mobile experience. There was a director responsible for the analytics experience because that was a very big piece of Hootsuite. And then there's uh, a director responsible for the engagement, like interacting with, with social media properties. And so, so that was how we were organized. We had these, these, you know, I was one director of multiple that each had an area of the product that they were responsible for. And we, we had, then, then we had a separate operations team, but except for the operations, we, we were responsible for delivering within our product area. And, and that, that worked for about a year and a half, uh, and then and then it, the way it stopped working is the adoption of of the product just got to the point where we, we couldn't keep it at a, at a level of availability that we were happy with any longer. So we we just we had to do something drastic in order to pay down like all this technical debt that had accrued. And the interest on the technical debt was really high because we were scaling so quickly. Uh, we made that we made a very conscious big change, which was to move to these these teams that would just get spun up, the ephemeral teams that would get spun up to tackle specific projects, and that worked really well, but only for a little while. And because we had a very specific mission that we were trying to accomplish, and that that mission was. As to bring the service back to a level of availability that our customers needed, and so we'd we'd identify projects where we said, "All right, well, that's preventing us from being able to keep the lights on." So, so like for example, you know, there's here's this caching layer, and it's just it's it's exploding all the time and bringing our entire site down. So we need to go remove that single point of failure. So we'd spin a team up; they'd go run at that project get it sorted out, availability would go up a little bit, and then we'd move on to the next thing. So that was that was great, but now we kind of taken off of, taken the eye off the product ball a little bit. So the product itself wasn't evolving as 
uh, effectively as we would have liked. We we were solving one problem, but while while another one grew. So then, as a as a result of of that realization that we needed to get back to product after we got the the availability better than it was, but still not to where we wanted it to be, we decided to move to uh, an org structure where we had kind of kind of back to the original model, but with another layer of very intentionally building microservices, and and so we we had. Teams that were responsible for, for again, different areas of, of the product, but they were also mandated to peel out these microservices from what was then a pretty big monolithic architecture. So yeah, that, and and then that worked well for. So that was kind of roughly speaking, like two years, two years, two years of my time with, with Hootsuite, where we ran you know very different org structures. Actually, let's pause there, Jordy, because I think what you did. At Hootsuite, with moving towards the microservices and establishing those teams, that you know we've got countless organizations in the industry in a similar state right now, right? As they're trying to move on-premise workloads to cloud, obviously that's that's one of the main drivers of this the, the shift to project to product and, and more effective team design and the rest. And and they're dealing with monolithic applications with stability, uptime issues, and the like, while they're they're trying to put in place all of these these modern practices. So, can you just deep dive into that a bit about what you know, how you approach creating those microservices teams while of course you had the and monoliths I assume still there and product needs coming in in terms of roadmap and customer asks and so on. How exactly did you tackle that at that point in time? Sure. So the first thing we did, like kind of using a let's be as agile as we can on this approach, we took a a, a fairly trivial Piece of functionality and said, "Well, let's just make a microservice out of that." Uh, like it was, it was something that generated documents in support of reports, and we said, let, let, "Let's just go prove to ourselves and, and and learn a little bit by doing this sort of small, safe thing." So that's the that's the first thing we did, and and we we learned a lot doing that. Got that delivered, and then I should step back and just mention that you know, as we were going through all these org changes, the team. That that I was a part of, and and you know I'll, I'll underscore it really was a, a massive team effort at Hootsuite. We were big proponents of of Conway's law, which is yeah, it's something like any organization that designs a system will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the communication structure. And th- that's I, I still to this day believe that that's one of the most powerful forces in organizational design. And and we we were intentional in reorganizing around. Like any reorg we did, we had to say, okay, well, our product's going to end up looking like our org structure, so let's be really thoughtful about our org structure. And usually that was, well, in all cases, that's what happened. But but to your question, we started by identifying, after we did that initial sort of POC thing, we identified what the key services we wanted, what would our first key services be? And then we spun up dedicated teams to go build them. There were a few interesting design choices we made that uh, some were good, some were bad. One, one I thought that was was really helped us was we always made sure that the the API on top of the microservice that we were building had a duplicate on the monolith, so that oh. we could we could run the two in parallel and. Kind of using like a creeping vine 
pattern, we could continue running it on the monolith, in parallel run it on the microservice, create the data, you know, generate the data as a result of running these two things in parallel, then compare the data and be astounded at the little differences you find as you're running these two things in parallel, but iron them out, just meticulously iron out the differences in what these two things are doing. And then when you're comfortable, start shifting traffic over to the microservice. So you made the Strangler pattern work? We did, yeah. That was the model we, we applied successfully to, to build dozens of services. Okay, and then, so, and back to Conway's law for a moment, right? Because you're needing it, presumably, to build, to invest more in these platforms, microservices, and APIs, and effectively replatforming off this monolith, right? So, how did you go about making sure that, that and this is, I, I think, one way, you're doing it incrementally while you know, not starving the, the feature delivery that's needed uh, in terms of meeting whatever the business goals were at the time, and then just making enough space for those platform teams who have been riddled with tech debt and outages or whatever they were dealing with at that time. So is there a- any big takeaways in terms of how you, how you made that work given so many struggle with that? Yeah, so I, I, I think a couple keys were being really direct and getting the buy-in from senior leadership that this is what we needed to do. And then as an output of, of those conversations of, uh, we, the conversations are essentially are, hey, we need to slow down a little bit on, on feature velocity and build out this microservices architecture. The benefit is going to be that we can move faster later and we're going to have these other we're going to have these other metrics on the technology that we like, like availability and, and latency and, and scalability. And so, like, first off is just have those big high-level discussions and build alignment. And then the second is, as part of that alignment, establish the metrics that you're going to track to make sure you're being successful. Like, it's, I, I've, I've not been a, a CEO, but... I, but I think it's a CTO and a CEO's worst nightmare to just kind of hear from your engineering team like, hey, we need to go sink an un, you know, undefined amount of effort into a black box, and at the end of it, you're going to have no, no customer value to show for it. So and it'll be 18 work. months. So. Yeah, and it'll be 18 months. So, so that doesn't work. So, so you have to establish the metrics that you're actually going to track to show the gains you're making. I think that's going to vary per organization, but one helpful way to do it, if if you're going to use availability as a metric, if you're if you're a cloud if you're cloud software availability, latency, you know, and a few other key things are your lifeblood. So, but if you're going to use availability, then you want to put a price tag on. You can do one of two ways. You can either take like the Google Site Reliability Engineer way of like putting a dollar value on the next nine. Yeah. Like. Hey, we can get as many nines as you want, but the additional nines are going to cost exponentially more yeah. to get. Or you can put a price tag on time and kind of look at it the opposite way and, and say, well, that be, kind of becomes my budget. Like if I know our current availability is is three nines, that result that's a certain amount of downtime. Downtime costs X dollars per minute, so that becomes my budget to go get the next nine. Got it. And so at this stage, you were, I assume you were in your VP engineering role and you did manage to convince your CEO. And as VP engineering, I was lobbying the CTO <laughs> and, yeah. and then I would partner with the CTO to engage the CEO on 
are needing to do this. And my role was to make it happen. <laughs> so let's let, and let's let's jump forward a, a bit. So you know, with these kind of learnings in hand, just tell me a bit more about sort of how you started with AWS and what the structure was, and and how you thought it needed to evolve and what you learned along the way. And is it, you know, is it just all about two pizza teams, or is there uh, is there more feeding that <laughs> that's needed at, at larger scales? So the two pizza team is the sort of base unit, and the, the idea is that. You want a team that can be fed by two pizzas to own something. Like, and and if, if, if a team is any bigger than that, you should probably think about splitting the ownership into two teams that own two things. Sort of keep subdividing that way. Now, it's not just this big, you know, universe of chaotic two pizza teams everywhere. There's there's structure on top of that as well. The critical organizational unit is the AWS service. Every AWS service has a lot of responsibility and a lot of autonomy in, in how it operates. And each service establishes what it wants to deliver for customers and then you know, working backwards from figuring out what they want. And then based on having figured out what customers want, will organize itself to go and deliver those expectations. And, and that can take... That can take different forms. Um, sometimes it it makes most sense to organize along feature dimensions. Sometimes it makes more sense to organize around the components of technology. But it's and it and it's it's really up to the service team to figure out well how can we best deliver for customers. The structure in terms of how that's evolved over time because it's, I think it's, what's so interesting about this is is the structure on top. Right, so I think there's a we have sort of a good sense of what it takes to support effective teams and team sizes and so on. But I think there's been so much change in how the industry thinks about how to structure those teams and how to you know do the reverse Conway's law fundamentally to you know to to, to shape that structure with the units being these two pizza sized teams. But with there being so many variations on, on how we structure them, is it going to be obviously the old school structures is, are of project orientation have been demonstrated to be less effective when you've got the business just throwing features over the fence of the team, no feedback loop, no autonomy, and none of that, right? And then just this this spaghetti mess of dependencies between those two pizza teams. And I th- the and of course you've got a lot of people out there who've established microservices teams, but again, the kind of coupling they've by not having the right kind of structures and support for autonomy and, and minimizing that coupling between those teams, they've ended up with with these hairballs of microservices. They're completely tangled and, and yeah. you know just creating the next distributed monolith. So how I think there's just and I know our conversations and, and so much what I've learned from you, Jordy, uh, is about those structures on top of those teams. So I'd just love for you to take us through maybe some of your, I don't know if you want to do it from when you, you, know, you, you started AWS to how you, the way you've evolved it, but take us through how you think about that structure, because again, I think that's, the, that's kind of the, the, the crux of making effective use of, of those teams and, and providing them with the right autonomy, or with autonomy. For sure. So the, like, strongly coupled with autonomy is, is ownership. And that's a key concept at, at Amazon that you want to have single-threaded owners for everything so that when there's a challenge or an opportunity related to a topic area, you can, based on the level of abstraction, you can figure out exactly, okay, who is the owner of that? Then the org structure is, okay, well, what, what do people own? 
And yeah, there's, there's different ways to do it. In my experience, there's kind of this, like over the, over the macro time cycle, there's, there's a bit of a pendulum that gets established between organizing around products and organizing around technology. And it kind of, the pendulum swings based on where a product is at in its life cycle. So if you are just starting out building something, it only has like conceptual ideas around what's going to be delivered for customers, then you're probably going to want to organize around product. And having leaders who are product first, very concerned about technology, are deep in technology, but are are organizing around what the thing is going to look like for the customer. And then if you juxtapose that to a product or a service that's been out there for years, has a, a really well-established product market fit, but it is operating at some insane scale, that means it's, it's constantly having to innovate at the technology layer, then you're probably going to want to organize more around the technology. And product is going to become still, again, extremely important because you, you can't stop, but it, it will be just secondary concern to the technology. And that's a pattern I've seen a lot is that you want to be really thoughtful about where is my product at? Is it, and, and depending on where it's at, establish whether you want to be more, more technology engineering led or more product led or you know, some, some combination of the two, which, which is also viable. And so you've got messaging and streaming now. Do you have a combination of both? Or where, where are you on the pendulum today in terms of your part of the org? Yeah, so I lead the, the service teams that deliver Amazon Simple Queue service, Amazon Simple Notification service, and Kinesis Data Streams. And that's an organizational unit that is interesting because they're all AWS native services. They're all very high scale. And from a customer perspective there's there's overlap between them. So as a customer, if I'm using SQS, well, I'm, I'm very likely also using SNS. And if I'm using Kinesis Data Streams, I might be asking myself, hey, should I also adopt SQS to do this job? Because it kind of feels like a, a queuing job. Or can I just do the queuing job with Kinesis Data Streams? And so one of the reasons we're organized as we are is because we want to be really thoughtful about that overlap and how how these services get positioned to customers. So how do you, given that overlap, how how do you go after making sure that they, and how autonomous are they in terms of you know, minimizing dependencies between them, minimizing the, the need for them to synchronize and collaborate to the point where they're slowing each other down? Back to Conway's law, you get this instant tailwind by putting teams closer together. So at a time further in the past at AWS, Kinesis Data Streams was a service team that that lived further away in the organization. And we kind of we still heard from customers saying, well, I use Kinesis Data Streams, should I use SQS? And Amazon's kind of place you if you want to talk to somebody, you reach out and talk to them and that's great. But if you're not part of the same business meetings week after week, month after month, you're not going to talk as often. And so just simply by virtue of that organizational design change, which, which brought Kinesis closer, we're now talking much more and learning much more from each other and avoiding the kind of things 
you're talking about, like, I mean, there's kind of, there's a big obvious plus and a big obvious, well, they're, they're both pluses, but one's like a do and one's a do not. So the do plus is like, hey, we have this big problem we need to solve. Looks like you solved it a year ago. And then the the person, the second person solving it gets this big tailwind of being able to solve it more quickly. And the don't is just, you know, sharing, sharing the hard lessons learned and, and avoiding falling into the same traps. Yeah, it's a pattern I've just seen a lot in my career of if you just bring teams that kind of look similar or have overlap together, they'll gain momentum, both of them, just and by virtue of being closer together. That makes sense. And then each, in your case, so each with an STO, a single family Yes, owner. yes. Okay. And how, and then each STO, and I guess, I guess it'd be great to again. I think this and the visual you you painted at the start, or kind of imagine a whole bunch of two pizza boxes and then a, a big org chart and matrix on top, <laughs> on top of them. It looked kind of messy in my mind, but but how do you? So, and I think you've helped evolve this to be extremely effective over time. So, how did it scale? Does one STO have multiple teams? Is it always one pizza team per STO? Are you? Is it turtles all the way down with the STOs? Can you just take us through that because I think that's where oversimplifications of what you've done, I've seen them getting misapplied. And, and I'd right. love for you to tell us more. The matrix thing generally doesn't work, in my experience. The two pizza teams do roll up to single-threaded owners of whatever the abstraction is for that, for that group. So like, let's, let's take an example. Let, let's say there's... The big AWS service that has a storage layer, it's big enough that it needs four two pizza teams to to run that storage layer. And you know, one of them's responsible for ingestion and one of them's responsible for egress and you know, one two more are responsible for two other logical subcomponents of a backend storage layer, then you're probably gonna have a single threaded owner for backend storage. And and those two pizza teams are all going to to report into that person, and depending on how how product facing that backend is, you may or may not have a product manager either at that aggregate layer or multiple product managers distributed to, throughout the team. Let's take another example of like a managed open source source product. Like an Amazon MQ, there it's you know a much newer, much newer product. So you might want to have a single-threaded service owner that is more of a product manager type person, and then organize within their business along the different types of brokers that you offer. You're organizing around what your product is on the one and in, in that latter example, whereas in in the First example, you're organizing around what your technology is, right? And so I think Jordan, this, this is where things, some of these things get interesting, and this speaks some to your, you know, your pendulum metaphor, which I think for me, ever since you shared, is is, is a really important metaphor, right? Is, is how product versus how technology or engineering centric the organization is, and then the role of engineering leadership, the role of product leadership, and then these STOs. And I think being very conscious of basically the, the, the teams and staff that you've got, where you are in that pendulum, and then fundamentally what kind of product you're delivering. Right? I remember when I started working with, uh, with, with SpringSource, there were really no product managers because it was all developer engineer facing products. Those, those were the customers. right? So all of the engineering leaders could play the role of, of product management in that structure, in that very simple structure. 
Then we've got, you know, elsewhere in the organization you might have if you're doing customer facing products or payments or these other things, all of a sudden that product role becomes the product management role, I should say, becomes much more important. And that one of the fascinating things I thought actually about the, you know, the I think that the working backwards book by Colin Breyer and Bill Carr was was excellent in summarizing some of this, is it can be hard to find the STOs who can do everything, even when you've got you know some of the world's best access to talent. And so, what's what's your view on this? Because at some point, even what you alluded to right now, you are putting multiple people, obviously cross-functional, different roles within a team. Uh, but how does it work in leadership? Because we've got I think, good examples out there of this you know minimizing that messy matrix, and in other cases of people succeeding with putting two in a box or sometimes three in a box to get those roles. And I think, yeah, you, you've had this very sort of crisp way of, of thinking about it. So how, you know, how do you approach it? And if you could, again, you know, relate it to both your experiences today, which, is, which are these more technology-centric products that work at massive scales versus what you said before, right? Some of the newer initiatives that a lot of our listeners will be undertaking. Right, so um, there's, I think there's a couple questions in there. I think the, the, first, the first one is around having leaders who who scale or 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 have how how do they how do they keep being successful while taking on these massive you know cross functional scopes there's two things i'd say about that the first is i think Colin Breyer and, and Bill Carr talk about this in their book of the the concept of mechanisms mm-hmm. it, that that's a a key piece of a of a senior leader's job at Amazon is to build and operate mechanisms that give the ability to make sure that that the business is going in the direction that it needs to go for customers. There's a piece of the description in that book which I think is particularly important, which is the the distinction between input and output metrics. If those happen, we know the business is is working for customers in in, in a way they're going to love, but they're not things we can probably directly impact. However, we can directly impact these input metrics. So those are the things we're going to track. And we're going to continuously inspect whether the input metrics are actually driving the output metrics. So you've kind of got two jobs in there. You've got to manage the input metrics and make sure they're correlated in the way you think they are to the output metrics and then continuously evolve that machine. So, so that, that's a that's a key tool that Amazon senior leaders use, or leaders of any scope really, to scale themselves and and make sure that, like, as they're taking on responsibilities that maybe are not in their, you know, personal wheelhouse of of experience, that they can continue to scale. And then the second thing is, I think, learning to delegate really effectively. You know, it's kind of just that's just kind of a general business guidance thing but it's it's an important point i don't think we should ever lose sight of you know if you've got a a pattern i see i've seen we've all i think lived is bringing a a product manager into a, a leadership role that has responsibility for engineering or vice versa bringing a really competent engineering leader into a role that has product management scope i mean th- those are always interesting inflection points in in a leader's career and i mean i, th- I think to be successful, those folks are more often. I've seen those folks be successful by leaning on the people in their organizations who have the experience they don't have, more so than thinking, 
I have to ramp up, um, you know, I'm a product manager. I have to ramp up on all this technical detail really quickly and be able to, to make good decisions about it. So I, I think that's a, that's an interesting challenge when you're, you're adding kind of that complementary scope to a, to a new leader's role. Well, right. But that's, and that's where things get interesting, right? Because it depends who those leaders are. So how, again, how do you approach? Because I think that kind of that there's this ideal out there, and and I think that you know working backwards speaks to the sum is that the sort of the ideal STO who's got that technology engineering depth as well as all of the business context experience with you know managing input out and all of that they're harder to find. So elsewhere in Amazon, you'll have lots of examples of of more of a two in the box, more of a matrix structure. I think you've been able to do you know to create more of the, the structure that you describe, but What's your guidance for others looking at evolving their structure? Is it to create the mechanisms and the common set of input metrics, let's say, to make two in the box more effective or to help mentor people who come from one side or the other to be able to you know, both understand and to delegate? How, yeah, how would you approach yeah, it? I think, I think it's all of the above. Having a good goal structure, I, I think, is important. And, and there's, there's you know, lots of different models out there there's there's the KPI model and there's there's goal model but i think that's that's a key to any leader's success is that like going into a new role they have to really understand what their mandate is strategically and then what metrics will be used to determine whether they're they're achieving that mandate and you want to be really thoughtful about like setting those expectations up front with the leader and making sure that there's alignment all the way to the to the top of the business on on what that team is doing. It it doesn't usually work to just say, "Hey, new leader, go jump in the deep end and figure it out," because they they just don't know what they're supposed to deliver. So you want to you want to align, and I and I coach I coach people taking new senior roles on this all the time. Is like, don't just think you have to go figure it all out. Go get alignment on what it is that you're being expected to deliver for the business you're a part of. And then decide whether it's something you want to do, and then go do it. So I think that's a really important piece in terms of learning the part of the role that you might not have the historical domain expertise on. I mean, to me, what, what I coach new leaders in that regard is just go in with you know, there's there's the Amazon leadership principle of of uh, learn and be curious, and you know, really lean on that. Like go go in with with humility, uh, an intention to, to just learn as much as you can, but not feel like you have to know it all. You're, you're going to want to rely on the people who are already in the business doing that job. Okay, awesome. And then just getting back, so, so that's the, the leadership portion. I think you've talked a lot about the kind of organizational design principles. I do want to you know, get back into this, the interaction of that. And as you said, there are many frameworks. You've got KPIs, OKRs we're seeing as in, I, I've been doing those for 10 years. They they're, they're seem to be getting more popular out there uh, outside of the, the startup circles. Fundamentally, I think one of the transformational things I've seen to, to help with this and help with this reverse Conway maneuver is understanding what those metrics are. Right, That's Where the anti-pattern I see is that you've got you know someone's coming in from the business side, the organization's trying to shift to more innovation, shift from project to product, and then it's really just that person's pushing for outreach metrics, we need to reduce costs, we need to improve revenues, and so on, and it's so detached from what's actually actionable 
by the teams, right? To your point on, on these input metrics. And I think it, it's interesting, right? Because the, the input metrics for, well, for Amazon, they're easy. It's, I, I like the one of how quickly my packages, that's, that's the one of the easiest ones to understand, ra- rather than stock price and the rest. But for, for technology teams, uh, I think one of the things that I've absolutely seen and, and, and keep pushing for is just to make sure that flow metrics are, are an input metric, right? The, the more that you can accelerate flow time for your features or, or fixing security vulnerabilities, the, the more you're driving value, right? The more you're driving the output metrics, the more you're driving sure. the, the outcomes. So, Jordi, the thing that I've seen, and you know, I've been calling this t- the, the kind of the layer above the, the PETA teams, whether it's an SDO structure or otherwise, is these value streams. And I think you're speaking to how important it is to effectively set and have the teams, where uh, autonomy comes in here, obviously, in a very important way, to have those value streams set their input metrics and manage to those and connect those somehow to their output metrics. So you've, I think, minted a lot of leaders who've become affected at that. So how any, any tips on that is how you get people thinking about the right input metrics for, for their portion of the portfolio, which, which oftentimes is more complex than a single two-pizza team. Right, I think the the OKR model is a good is a good one to sort of think about this problem. What I love about OKRs is there's there's a building cascading into the OKR model. So like the the CEO's objective might be growth of X or margin of Y or or new users of N, and then that logically subdivides into all the different business units in the organization: marketing, sales product, technology, finance, everything. And then going down further within within the engineering organization, you should always be able to connect the outputs you're seeking, the inputs that are going to generate those outputs to those higher order objectives of the business. So that, that's that's the first key point I would make. And different businesses have different volume of how top-down that guidance is, but it, it's never zero. Like there, there's always some signal as to like, okay, well, well, where is my part of the business trying to get to, and and what can my team do to affect that change? And then, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's there's not a lot of magic to it. You you just want to go look for things that you can affect, like things you can actually change. And then ask yourself, all right, if I change that thing, will it logically generate the output? I'll give a couple of examples maybe to, to help explain that a bit. Back to the availability one, because I, I think that's that's a really important one. If you can put a price tag on your downtime or the value of another nine, then an engineering team can say, okay, that's my output. I want I yeah. want to get another nine. But you can't just go get another nine. You have to do. You have to look at a bunch of input things to be able to get that that next nine of availability. It turns out there's kind of a you know greatest hits set of things you can do. Back to flow, you can reduce the cycle time on your deployments because you can you can get fixes out faster. You can roll back faster, and therefore your availability will be better. Another input metric that I love is the the number of deployments that that a technology team does. I love that metric because in order to be able to safely deploy many times, you have to have done a whole bunch of other things, right? You have to have figured out your your automated test suites. You have to have completely automated your pipelines. You have to have 
put controls in place so that different people writing code don't step on each other's code as as they send deployments through the pipeline. So there, there's an example of like, okay, well, the output, the business says, if we're more available, we're going to be able to grow more and keep more customers. That's our output metric. Our inputs are how how long does it take to deploy? How long does it take to detect, detect and fix a problem? And how many deployments can we do over end period of time? So yeah, that that's kind of a, an example of enacting that outputs to inputs connected to business strategy model. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely required, I think, for... So I want to actually go beyond that, right? Because I think so that's, I think, critical for every team. And then let's connect it a bit more to what you were saying before, is actually, you know, you've got that in place, and that now you want to drive innovation, right? You want to drive speed to innovation with with kind of that, that safety and reliability of, of deployments in your pipeline in place. And I'm just curious how you go about this, because the... I've, and I'm actually, frankly, you know, thinking through it as as how we're approaching TaskUp. How broad do you make these value streams, right? Have you, you know, do you actually bring in as as you're trying to bring more of the business, the customer context, as you're working backwards into the teams? What do you do with all the other functions? Have you thought, you know, do you think about bringing in support, marketing? How, how do you think about just how, you know, this kind of almost idealized, but a world I liked of every one of these value streams, every one of these STO structures as a mini startup. How much do you bring in in terms of the the other roles? How do you think about that, Jordi? Yeah, that that's a that's a great question, and and it 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 really is, it it depends on the organization. I mean, as as we've seen over the past probably fifteen years now, maybe maybe ten, operations is one thing where the d- development teams and operations teams have have come much closer together and are really part of the same value stream now. But are they? Are you keeping them as in the same org chart? Or are you keeping them? Because I think that that's another yes. sort of key question. Yeah, which yes. I completely yeah. agree with. Not, not that yeah. everyone gets, goes there overnight, but... Yeah, I would argue that over the last 10 years, we've, we've gotten to a place where you'd have to have a really good, probably quite unique reason to decouple those two things. The other one that has been brought much closer and become more embedded in the value stream is security. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago you'd find the office of the the CISO and 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 then you know would be maybe over with finance or something like that and, and then you'd have IT and then you'd have engineering and yeah, George keep it a lot of people sort of still living in ten years ago by the way, but keep going. <laughs> yeah so 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 yeah, so you have the you have the CISO with finance, you have IT probably also with finance, maybe with engineering, and then you've got development. And those three things for sure have converged a ton yeah. over the last three years. So that they're, I mean, especially for an organization that's you know going through like quote digital transformation or moving to the cloud, those three things are generally they're going to become strongly coupled and embedded in the same part of the org chart. You may still have like pieces of it that operate at a different levels, you know, specific to security or specific to operations, but you're you're gonna have those capabilities within every team delivering a product. Yeah. Then you get into uh, interesting other parts of the business like say marketing and sales. I haven't seen a case where it makes sense to embed dedicated marketing or go to let's call it go to market i haven't seen a case where where it makes sense to embed dedicated go to market people within that value stream delivery team but more and more you do see those go to market folks 
being like coupled to multiple value stream teams. Like they're they become resources responsible for the go-to-market of specific value streams. So it's they're not part of the strictly the same org, but they're they're you know, dotted line, so to speak, where they yeah. have their responsibilities specific to a value stream. Yeah, I actually remember, I remember Microsoft trying it. It's actually embedding product marketing within those value streams or programs, right? right? But again, right. it's 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 another one of these these pendulums. And I think the you know my sense is what you're saying that the three things coming together between development, operations, security. Those if those are not coming together somehow, something's wrong, right? Yeah. And then these other things are almost I don't know. I think they're it seems like they're they're secondary again as long as you've got the right kind of dotted lines. So so then okay, data is another one that I data, think is. Yeah. Is slowly the, the the gravity well is pulling data into product engineering teams as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you do have in the end, and and just last one, support. Have you have you ever thought about bringing that into the value streams, or have you looked at that one? Since we're, we've covered almost everything now. Yeah, I mean, I think I think support is at the end of the day, it's it's in the value stream whether you like it or not. Yeah, because there, there's there's you know that that old model of tier one, two, three support or whatever yep. it is. Like like there's a certain class of customer challenge that is it's going to end up with the product development team to to resolve it. I guess it's just a matter of how how explicit you make it. I can remember one practice we had at Hootsuite, which I which I thought worked really well was we would invite people from from the customer success team to participate in product development team standups. Yeah. And awesome. they would if you you know if you're using Agile or or Kanban or something, they would kind of, they they would get a swim lane and 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 they would they would be able to oh. at, at their discretion they'd be able to pack work items into a sprint, say, um, and that worked really well because it it kind of it established ownership for the support team within the product development team, but but in a in an explicit amount of capacity like. The support team couldn't come. It's like, okay, I'm I'm knocking over your whole sprint. You're all working on support cases, but the engineering team had to leave that swim lane available for support to put work into. Oh, I like that. And then you give that swim lane its own whip, so they can't they can't overtake right. the rest. That's right. yeah, that's made. So okay, I think a lot of people have tried that, but I you've actually just made it more explicit and more structured. So, wow. Okay, so Jordi, I think we've hit on on so many things. I think the kind of back to these value streams and making them autonomous and independent and kind of their own startup like like structures. To me, one of the most important things about that is once you've got in place these other key table stakes, right, around the deployment frequency, around everything that we need in terms of the automation on the, on the pipeline and the rest. In the end, I think one of to me one of the most important things is, is that speed to innovation, right? It's just to quote uh, a, a, the the podcast with Adrian Cockcroft uh, that we did previously. So that's speed to innovation, the flow time of those features. How do you once we've got again those other pieces in place? That is what makes teams do great work. That that gives them great satisfaction and it delivers to the customers. Any as we wrap up, any other insights that you have on on fueling that kind of dynamic, the structure needed for that, the the leadership mindset to drive innovation as you've been doing through through your AWS services. Here, here's an input metric I'll I'll suggest to to get faster speed to innovation, which which is you, you want to build a distribution of where your team's effort is going. So, like on any given team, they're going to spend some percentage of their time on operations and they're going to spend some percentage of their time on just keeping up with like 
new versions and patches and so on. And they're they're going to spend some amount of time on customer issues and and so on and so forth. And what's left is going to be the amount of capacity you're allocating to innovation. Um, and and that's a that's a really valuable thing to look at. Is okay we. At the beginning of the year, we made this roadmap and we we set out all these ambitious plans, but all these great things we were going to do. And at the end of the year, we we didn't get all of it done. We got some of it done. We're happy with the things we got done, but we want to get more done. I contend that a really important way to, to start being able to get more done is to look at where the team's effort actually went. You want to see, like, were we did we put as much time into that innovative stuff we wanted to do, but we're just a bit inefficient with it? Or did we get swamped by all the other stuff that we we just couldn't not do and therefore had less actual effort put into the innovation than we would have liked? Yeah. In my experience, like it's it's not easy to do, but it's doable. And I don't mean time tracking. You know, and anytime I bring this topic up, the engineers in the room are like, if you time if if this is time tracking, I want nothing to do with it. Yeah. It's not time tracking. It's it's more of a management job to using the tools you already have to run your sprints and and your agile processes to to to, to keep a pulse of okay wh- where where is my team putting its time in terms of the type of work and is enough of that innovation. Yeah, I love it. And it's, it's how we track it. We've got this flow distribution metric. It's exactly what you're describing. And if it ever on a value stream that's meant to be innovative, of course, some of the backend ones will be more about stability and the rest. But but the flow distribution never drops below 50%, we start worrying. And then the thing that I actually have realized, and, and this is just another reminder, Jordy, is the, is the predictability of that, right? The, I almost had flow predictability as a metric just to see how, how much we actually delivered on the innovations that we were after, the new things that we were going to deliver, whether that's APIs or user experience or something else, uh, because all that new stuff came in because we ended up doing more firefighting than we thought. So yeah, could not, could not agree more. That's awesome. Thank you so much for this. Any, any other last sage advice, Jordy? Have fun with it. It's these. Yeah. These are really. These are really. I, these these journeys are intense but fun to to go figure out your flow and how to get your value streams right. They're they're fun. I think if if you really empower your teams, like you know, as as a leader, I find more and more our jobs are about understanding what the subject matter experts closest to the delivery know more than it is about yeah telling them what they need to do and then figuring out how to unblock them. So yeah, I don't know if there's any wisdom in there, but I think that's an important point as well. And I think that have fun is key as well. I could not agree more. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and uh, we'll link to that video of yours that you mentioned in the conference and and any other resources you'd like to share. So thanks so much, Jordy. Awesome. Thank you, Mick. Pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you to Jordy for taking the time to join us today. For more, follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MickPlus1 or Project to Product. You can also reach out to Jordy on LinkedIn. I have a new episode every few weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all of the proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time. <laughs>